You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. Lecture 4, Chapter 1, The Pope's Use of the Story of the Rich Young Man. When I was studying moral theology in the seminary, I always found myself wondering why at least some of the courses were called moral theology. And the reason I found myself wondering that is that the courses seemed to me to be philosophical. That is, they started with a certain set of assumptions and then proceeded to work out the implications of those assumptions and then to work out some of the applications of what they had urged as the moral assumptions. As someone who was already trained in philosophy before he went to the seminary, I found it very interesting, even when I disagreed with some of the starting assumptions. If the teacher, for instance, had a strongly utilitarian bent or a somewhat narrow Kantianism, I found that you know, interesting intellectually, but I, I found myself wondering why they would call that moral theology. Moral theology, as, as I understand it, has to have a commitment to the truth of revelation. One can think about other ways of doing studies in an academic way about God. I'm thinking, for instance, that many universities have programs of religious studies, and I think those can be very interesting. They often involve the comparison of one of the world's great religions with another one of the world's great religions, and they take religion as an academic study. And so they know how it works in Hinduism, and how it works in Islam, and how it works in Judaism, and how it works in Christianity. And yet none of those courses in comparative religion or religious studies strikes me as a real theology course, because the assumption of those particular approaches is simply that this is what one tradition holds, or this is the way in which another particular tradition has tended to develop. Moral theology, in the strong sense of the term, presumes the truth of revelation. And so one can think about Jewish moral theology, and presumably someone doing that would accept what is the tradition of Judaism, namely that what we call the Old Testament, or what they would call the Bible, is indeed the truth that God has revealed it. When a, a good uh, practicing Jew does that, they tend to think of the Torah as at the center, the five books of the law, and then around it they tend to think of the prophets, and the prophets are all pointing back and giving witness to the truth of the Torah. And then all the rest of the writings, ketuvim, are writings, whether it's the Psalms or the wisdom literature or the historical books, and they too in their various ways are pointing back to the Torah that is God's great gift. But they take that gift as true. Likewise, one could do Islamic theology and think of the Quran as truly the revelation God gave to his prophet Muhammad, and then work out an Islamic ethics, and so on for the other great religions of the world, especially those not associated with their own tradition. In doing Christian moral theology, I think the fundamental assumption that we must make is the truth of God's revelation. The truth of God's revelation over the course of Israel's history, and then especially the truth of the revelation in the person of Jesus, a revelation which is eventually written down in the form of the scriptures of the New Testament. We think of the many writings that were composed in the early apostolic and sub-apostolic period, and the need that the church had 
to sort out those various writings and to, in fact, choose among them. One of the interesting things, of course, is that there were many other Gospels written besides the canonical four Gospels that are part of our scriptures. There is the Gospel of Peter and the Gospel of James, even the Gospel according to Judas. All of those are regarded as apocryphal by us, that is, additions, things that came from that period, things that might, in fact, be quite pious, that might be quite religious, that might be full of interesting and perhaps some accurate information. On that subject, I always love to think about what's called the Proto-Evangelium of James, that is, a work attributed to the Apostle James, which tells especially about Mary's youth. The Church did not include it in the canon of scriptures, but it is a venerable document, and there are many other such documents. My point is simply to say, for Catholic moral theology, with all of our indebtedness to human reason and to good sound philosophizing, we are extremely indebted to Revelation, and we hold the Revelation as true. As we will discover and discuss a bit more in the sixth lecture when we get there, we have to understand that truth according to the four levels of meaning, that there is a literal level which the human author, under divine inspiration, meant and intended. There is also a set of spiritual meanings of Scripture, the typological, sometimes called the allegorical level, the moral, sometimes called the tropological, and the uh, final one, the anagogical, sometimes called the sacramental or pastoral dimension, and that each of those three levels is intended by the Holy Spirit and really is there in the text of the scriptures available for us to pull out, available for us to discern. This is part of what God's disclosure was. We differentiate those four from any other accommodated sense when we simply want to use a passage of Scripture for some purpose of our own. And that can be interesting, that can be helpful, but we're not claiming that that is found within the text of Scripture. We are absolutely committed to the truth of this, and so because of our commitment to the truth of this, it is no surprise that Pope John Paul II, in the first chapter of Veritatis Splendor, begins his account with a gospel passage of exceptional significance. It is not that it is the only part, the only significant point, but it is simply one of great significance because of the nature of the story at the literal level, namely the encounter between a rich young man and Jesus and his desire to learn from Jesus, whom he calls good teacher. What is it that he must do? What good must he undertake in order to attain eternal life? And as their conversation unfolds in that passage from Matthew 19 that I'm sure you know well and that we'll study in just a minute, the, our, Lord, our Holy Father finds in this text rich resources for thinking about basic moral theology, fundamental questions of moral theology. As such, we have a readiness on his part and on the Catholic tradition's part to account great credibility to this. Let me interrupt for just a minute before I continue with the look at chapter 1 with a philosophical point, and I think it's one of some importance. Think about how you define knowledge. There are many definitions out there, and there's benefits and advantages to each of them. Let me take one of the standard ones that goes all the way back to Plato. Knowledge is justified, true belief. The three components of that definition are, I think, very important. For it to be really knowledge and not merely a lucky guess, we truly have to believe it. 
But merely believing it isn't enough to make it knowledge. I can believe all sorts of things that aren't true. So a second important element in the definition of knowledge is that it be true, a true belief. There is no such thing as false knowledge. There are things that are thought to be knowledge that turn out to be false, but then we say, well, we were mistaken to have held them. Finally, it's not just that it's believed, and it's not just that it's a true belief, but we've got to know why it's reasonable to hold this as true. We call that its justification or its warrant. We could say, well, right now the time is 11 o'clock. That might be true. I might believe it. But it's only knowledge if I have reason to think, ah, in this time zone, at this particular moment, it's 11 o'clock, or it's not. I've got to have justification, which could consist of a working watch. It could consist of summoning some other piece of information by calling outside the room where we're doing this videotaping. I have to have a justification. In thinking about knowledge as justified true belief, clearly the real focus is on our justification. What we are saying in this document, Veritatis Splendor, is that there are two main sources of justification. One source of justification for moral knowledge is our reason, our reason reflecting on our human nature, and our reason, by a careful look at nature, discovering something there that the Creator, the author of our nature, built into that nature for us to find, something that would serve as guidance for us in the moral life. But the other possible source of justification in this particular instance is something that comes with testimony, namely, we hold such and such to be true because it's been revealed by the highest source. Our friends, hopefully, are trustworthy. Neutral, impartial authorities are trustworthy. They have nothing to gain from lying. But the most impartial, the most trustworthy source is God himself. The claim that the Pope is making in Veritatis Splendor is that on these matters of moral truths, the truths that we need for moral living, we get from Revelation the most credible, the most trustworthy source, namely God himself. This is an epistemological point, but one that deserves to be made separately as we undertake this study of Veritatis Splendor's first chapter. What we find here, of course, is that the Pope is attempting to really focus on this source, and later down the pike, when we get to chapter 2, he will turn especially to the source that reason can provide. In chapter 1, he begins by simply retelling the story from the Gospel of that rich young man, and I've told it several times now. But at each stage along the way, what he finds is that we can reflect upon it, and we can see when we reflect upon each element of the story something that is significant for the relation between the young man and Christ, the typological meaning, the way in which Christ perfects what is still imperfect, sanctifies what's sinful and complete what's incomplete, about the young man at that stage of his development, but also something of great moral significance, things that extend beyond merely the case of this one rich young man and his concern about getting to heaven, his concern about eternal life, but that are true for all of us. If I were just to go down the list briefly, here is what I come up with. Namely, in that opening segment, chapter 19, verse 17, when the rich young man comes and asks the question, what the Pope finds in that rich young man's question is the questions that all of us would ask. 
And hence he finds that this is a segment of the text in which there is not only a, at the literal level of the story the questions of one individual, but the questions of everybody. And interestingly, the questions of this rich young man are turned to the historical person of Christ. So too, in the questions that everyone must ask, there are ways in which we must turn and expect to find those answers to our fundamental questions to Jesus himself. Also, in chapter 19, verse 17, when he asks him, what, command, what good must I do? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. We find there a reference to how to answer the questions of morality, namely to answer the questions of morality by turning to the will of God. Now, as a young, pious Jew, this young man comes to Jesus, and it's not at all unexpected that Jesus would answer man, the man in the category in which he was most familiar, the category that is so central, the commandments. Think, for instance, for just a minute, about how Judaism of that young man's world would see things. At the heart of their world is the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And yet all that is within the Torah, not only the stories of Genesis, but the accounts given of the exile into Egypt there when they have left the exile in Egypt and have now gone into the, the, the desert of Sinai, they are given the commandments. At the very heart of the covenant are these commandments, and they are central for the life of this young man. In Leviticus, what we get are the additional instructions, the holiness code, and the way in which that young man has learned to live and to try to keep these commandments. From that young man's world, I expect a world very much like the world of Paul before he became a Christian, but when he was such a wonderful, excellent example of a Pharisee, the Ten Commandments were thought of as at the very center of his existence. And then in Leviticus, we have the 613 other statutes about keeping kosher, about maintaining ritual purity, and all the other parts of the statutes that serve like a picket fence around the law. At the heart of that young man's existence is a matter of keeping the commandments. Pope John Paul II, in reflecting upon the answer that Jesus gives, suggests in a way, for him, it's a matter of the divine law, which God explicitly gave to Moses. For all the rest of us, it is not only the attention we give to the Ten Commandments, but also the attention we give to natural law, that even if we were not raised within the ambit of the traditions of Israel, there are many things about morality that we cannot help but know. As Jay Botashevsky likes to put it in some of his wonderful books on the natural law, what can I not not know? There's some things that we cannot fail to know if we are at all being honest with ourselves. Things like the demands of justice, things like the demands of the freedom to speak and to disclose ourselves. Pope John Paul II finds in the way in which Jesus answers the young man at 19 verse 17 appeals to natural law as well as divine. In chapter 19 verse 18, when Jesus and the young man continue, the young man clearly wants to know, I've kept all these. What more must I do? And there's a strong sense in the question that he asks that morality isn't just a matter of keeping the commandments, keeping the rules. In a way, part of what we have to understand is that the rules, the commandments, point to a value about human nature that far surpass merely the external or legalistic keeping of the commandment. I have a Jesuit friend 
who is a, an astrophysicist, and he was even before he joined the religious community, Brother Guy Consul Magno, wonderful man. But in the course of his Jesuit training, at one point he was sent out um, to Silicon Valley, and he was talking with all the computer nerds, and talking with them especially about their relationship to God and their understanding of religion. And most of the people he was talking with found religion a little off-putting, a little alienating. But the reason, interestingly, Brother Guy discovered was this. They found religion to be mostly a matter of rules, and as far as they could tell, arbitrary rules. They dislike arbitrary rules. But Brother Guy, astrophysicist that he is, of quite some considerable scholarly standing, he realized that these computer nerds Gosh, what they do all day long is write rules. They write rules for computers, for computer programs. But what they like about their rules is that the rules make sense. What the rules do is to direct the action of the program of they're trying to run for some legitimate purpose. So the, the thrust of Brother Guy's evangelizing with them was to talk about the reason for the rules. This will be part of Pope John Paul's own explanation, and I think like the experience of Brother Guy out in Silicon Valley, he had a great sense that as soon as the reason for the rules were explained, what the purpose behind, what they were supposed to lead to, those folks had very little problem with reasonable rules, and they found religion all the more acceptable precisely because there was a point and a purpose to the nature of the rules. Well, part of John Paul II's reflection on the words of Jesus in the course of the first chapter as he's going through it is to show that there's a purpose to the rules. That is, the commandments are designed really to make human life possible and to defend it, and to defend its innocence and its dignity and its likeness to God, and that in doing so, it makes all the more great sense. As John Paul II is continued to explain this, he eventually says to the young man who wants to know what more must he do, that he should go and sell all that he has and give what he earns from selling it to the poor and then come back and follow him. The Pope uses this not only at the literal level to understand the actual conversation of Jesus with the young man, but as a pointer to what else we should do. At this point in the text, he will go on to a discussion of the Beatitudes that are found earlier on in the Gospel of St. Matthew, beginning at the very start of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. And in the course of his reflection on it, you get the sense that this is what the young man probably wants to hear about, thinking about the Beatitudes as related but not the same as the commandments. For the Beatitudes aren't particularly stated in rule fashion, but nonetheless they talk about the very purpose of some of the same things that the commandments talk about. And they show us what more there is to do. Jesus will also talk about it in terms of going and selling all that he has and giving it to the poor, and then coming back free of the burden of those possessions. And he gives a sense of what the counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience are. The young man, of course, goes away sad, and so by chapter 19, verse 22 and 23, the young man goes away still unable to do that. And part of what John Paul will explain in the course of his reflection on this is the way in which the young man is still in the process of development. He has managed to get to a certain stage in the development where he understands rule abidance. Rules are no longer alien to him. And yet he has a sense and a hunger for more, but not yet a knowledge of how to get the more. 
He comes to the right person, just as we should come to the person of Christ, and yet he's not yet willing to abide and to accept by that invitation. When I try to pray over the parable of the, rich young, the story of the rich young man, part of what I do is to think about it as perhaps occurring over the weekend, on a Saturday or a Sunday, when there's more time to talk about those things. And then wondering what happened to the rich young man on Monday morning, or perhaps Tuesday of the following week. Did he find it in his heart to think over what Jesus had told him, and eventually to accept the invitation that Jesus offered? You notice, and it will occur here in the text of the first chapter, that Pope John Paul II is mindful that even the apostles are a little bit worried about this particular conversation. At one point, he discusses this at chapter 19, verse 26, the apostles are eager to know, gosh, if the young man is unable to do it, how will anyone be saved? And Jesus reminds them of something that he had talked about earlier on in chapter 19 of the Gospel of Matthew, that with God all things are possible. That's not just an abstract calculation of what the possibilities of an omnipotent being can do. It's rather a very practical suggestion about the fact that God's grace can take and transform someone, can lead them higher in the process of their human maturation, can make it possible for them to do, by an act of free choice of the will, what they could not do at some earlier point in the course of their encounter with Jesus. Well, that's a brief summary of what we'll find in chapter 1. Let's now start to look at some of the details, and then I'll continue with that in the next lecture. At the very beginning, chapter 19, verse 16, the young man appeals to Jesus, and he calls him a teacher. <clears throat> I think that Jesus must have appeared as a kind of wandering itinerant rabbi who had now come across this rich young man's path. Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Part of what you will find in the text of Veritatis Splendor at this point is the way in which John Paul II reads that question not only as a question at the literal level, actually asked by one particular individual, but the way in which any of us, at any period of history, wants to know. Up at Fordham, I live with the freshman students in a beautiful dormitory called Queen's Court in honor of Mary, our Queen. Absolutely fascinating to me, year after year, as one class after another is uh, present in the beginning of a new semester, the way in which the questions are the same. The faces are different. The people's urgency of unanswering them are different, but the way in which those questions are truly repeated in the human heart. And so Jesus is very tender and patient. He is a good and loving teacher, I think, who wants to bring this young man along. And so that what he does is to see and to bring out for the young man a sense of the connection between the commandments and eternal life. That this pious young Jew who has approached him does understand that the commandments have a purpose. As you may know from your other study of the scriptures, not all Jews were convinced, nor are they today, that there is any life beyond this life. For some, there is only this life, and that is all there is, but there is the ongoing life of the people, and some find themselves content with that faith that it is the people who go on. This young man seems at least to understand that there is an eternal life, a personal immortality, He's not yet here talking about whether the soul is simply separate from the body or whether there's a resurrection of the body. As you know, Jesus had many conversations and generally took the same position as the Pharisees did, that there is a resurrection of the body that is expected. The Sadducees, on the other hand, 
for the most part, priests who had really lost their faith but who still lived their job, were cold fish by comparison and disbelieved in the resurrection of the body. Jesus will weigh into that controversy, but here he finds a young man who already seems to see the connection, and he has found something attractive in the person of Jesus. For Pope John Paul, this is, I think, significant, and a suggestion about how people today need to turn again to Christ. Part of what John Paul II was doing on those World Youth Days, part of what he was doing in the new evangelization, part of what he was doing when he knew how to play the stage of the world history, is that he wanted people to encounter Christ again. Because while there is an importance to book learning, while there is an importance to teaching, like the thing we're trying to do in these videotaped lectures, nonetheless, far more important is a personal prayer life. And so I'd just like to reach out right here and challenge you, invite you, to pray over this passage from, chapter, from Matthew's chapter 19, to pray over it even as we talk about it, and make sure to find the time listening to Jesus yourself, perhaps trying to imagine yourself as the rich young man, and to put yourself truly in his place, and hear the words of Jesus said to you and said to me. It is also, of course, important for any of us to meditate upon our weakness and our sinfulness. There is something absolutely amazing about the answer that the rich young man gives when Jesus continues his conversation with him. After bringing the young man to see that only God is good, he, he suggests to the young man that what he ought to do is to keep the commandments. Now, in both of those lines, that only God is good and that he ought to keep the commandments, one finds themes that John Paul II is going to develop in great depth. In particular, the line, God alone is good. We have to ask ourselves those questions, and sometimes, when still in a worldly mindset, the only answer we can come up to it is, well, this appears good to me, either in the short run or the long run. This appears good for our whole community in the short run or in the long run. If we are of a more Kantian mindset, holiness of the will for Immanuel Kant is a matter of whether we can will purely without any expectation of reward. And he thinks that we will purely only when we take a particular maxim, a particular proposed imperative, and we universalize it. And if we can universalize it, extending a permission to others that I want to have myself, or requiring of myself a duty that I'm expecting others to keep, only when we can universalize it do we have that holy will, one that is reasonable, one that increases and enhances our autonomy and our freedom, for Kant, the source of goodness is our self-legislation. For a biblically inspired picture like John Paul II is painting, goodness comes from God alone. And here he's thinking, as I was urging before, his ethics comes from a certain vision of the person, comes from a certain metaphysics. God is the creator, and there isn't any goodness in the world except what God put there. And even when he finds that world mired in sin, the work of the redemption is to put the, goodness of the put the goodness back into the world because the world of itself can't get there. Even in knowing about the goodness of things, ultimately we have to come to the goodness of God. Let's just take a practical example. Supposing we were in a discussion with somebody about why it's so important to defend innocent human life. If we were a utilitarian, I expect we're going to have to answer that question by saying, well, 
better that we maximize that and minimize those who are more aggressive. It will be a safer place for all of us to live. If I were a Kantian, I think I would have to say it's going to be a contradiction for me to say that I can take the life of anybody else without having mine at risk. So that ultimately it comes down to the calculations that we do, either about the consequences or about the very nature of the reasoning. The answer that Pope John Paul and that every Christian must give is that goodness comes alone from God. That God is the one who makes things good and designs them with a certain nature so that things will be good in this world if they conform with the divine plan and that they will be bad if they in some way or other contradict or disfigure or make that plan impossible of its realization. It is part of what the rich young man needs to learn and so he hears it from Jesus and then hears how the commandments are a way to follow up on that. That the good God has formulated these commandments for the goodness of the humanity who must keep them. Among the recent writings on this subject, I'd like to refer you in particular at this point to the writings of a philosopher from Toronto, now mostly working in Washington, John Rist. He has a book called Real Ethics, and what he does is takes and reviews many number of the moral theories that have been philosophically um, elaborated in the course of recent theory, and what he shows is that in those various philosophical theories, unless there is a transcendent foundation, there will be some incoherence within the ethical theory. Maybe the transcendent foundation will be perfectly clear and stated, as in Christian ethics. Maybe the transcendent foundation will only be implied. One thinks, for instance, of the way in which it works for Plato, and the reference is ultimately to the perfect good as the perfect form. But unless there is a transcendent foundation, he thinks that ultimately the moral theory will be incoherent by its internal contradictions. John Paul II, I think, is showing precisely that kind of need for a transcendent foundation, and especially placing it in the goodness of God. In his conversations with the earth young man, he turns to the nature of the obligation that comes from the commandments and then shows the rich young man where he must turn when he wants more. For the young man can say with a, a confidence that's very bold and in fact surprising, I have kept all these, what more must I do? And so Jesus points him to the act of charity, of giving away what he has in self-gift, letting the symbolism of actually the property and the possessions symbolize the whole of the self-gift that he must make, putting it at the service of God and at the service of neighbor. This will be at the heart of Christian morality, loving God with all our mind and heart and soul and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself. In the next lecture, we'll consider a few more points, and in particular, if you want to prepare for this, I want to look next time at Veritatis Splendor chapter 1, paragraph number 13. And there is a wonderful passage there we'll read aloud and consider about the nature of freedom that John Paul II finds in this conversation. But we'll save that for the next lecture. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.